Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination, Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. At 4.45pm precisely, GMT, on 15th February 1894, the grounds of Greenwich Park, London, home of the Royal Observatory, and a clock we will discuss later, are shaken by a resounding boom. Staff at the observatory recalled a sharp and clear detonation, followed by a noise like a shell going through the air. They peered out the windows in trepidation, attempting to work out just what happened. The park warden and a group of students ran towards the epicentre of the blast, where a solitary young man lay dying. The young man who died not long after, in a local hospital, was identified as 26-year-old Frenchman, Marshal Bourdin. Bourdin was a member of the Autonomy Club, a collection of anarchists who largely escaped more authoritarian regimes on the continent, and who, once in Britain, either became radicalised or found kinship in that group. To pin down what constitutes an anarchist, well, their beliefs could run the gamut from communism to libertarianism and all sorts in between. But the unifying themes were the rejection of authoritarian figures and hierarchies, the distrust of all current institutions, and often a wish to destroy society so they could build a new society based on their particular beliefs. Often they hoped to achieve this through terrorist acts. The Autonomy Club had come to the attention of many in 1892, when a bomb-making facility was rumbled in Walsall, northwest England. That Bourdin would expire of his injuries was a given. When inspecting the scene, his blood, flesh and bone left a 60-metre blast radius. That he hadn't intended to blow himself up was assumed. When he left Westminster that day, he was carrying a considerable sum of money. Inspectors took this as evidence he was planning to skip the country for the continent following the blast. It's always been assumed he lost his footing while nervously walking a zigzag pathway to his intended target, and on stumbling, the bomb went off. His intended target has been a matter of some speculation. It probably wasn't the well-guarded naval facility that was the observatory. Chances are, at most, Bourdin may have blown a hole in the fence, perhaps killed a guard or two or a crowd of Londoners. On Thursday afternoons, the park was pretty quiet. But the 24-hour gate clock on the grounds, a clock which had counted the time with deadly accuracy since 1852. To understand why someone might want to blow up a clock, we have to consider the concepts of noble myths. The time hasn't always been exactly as it is now, and that for most conveniences that improve our lives, there is often a corollary effect that makes our lives worse off. First, to time itself. The Earth is in constant motion in a number of ways. In one way, it spins on its axis in a direction we call east, at a speed we measure as either a thousand miles per hour, or 1600 kilometers per hour. The mile comes from an estimate of a thousand paces by a Roman soldier, in Latin, the mille passes. A kilometre is a thousand metres, and a metre is one ten millionth the distance from the equator to the North Pole. A 24-hour day is a close approximation of the time it takes for Earth to spin one time on its axis. 
actually takes approximately 23 hours 56 minutes to fully spin, but it's close enough. The other way we move, of course, is an elliptical orbit of the Sun, which gives us a year. We get divisions of hours, minutes and seconds the way we do, because 5,000 years ago, the Sumerians worked with a duodecimal, a base 12, and the sexagesimal, a base 60 system, rather than our preferred decimal, base 10 system. The Babylonians kept base 12 and base 60 alive in their mathematics and their astronomy because it suited what they were doing. The Greeks brought the concept back to Europe in the wake of Alexander the Great's conquests from 336 to 324 BC. They used these systems particularly for navigation and trigonometry. Going on knowledge the world was spherical, Hipparchus of Nicaea broke new ground when he divided a globe up into 360 degrees, a derivation of 6 times 60. The Roman, Ptolemy of Alexandria, further developed the language by subdividing the lines into minute, small parts, minutes, and the smaller second, seconds, division. He divided by 60 both times. In the 16th century, our technology was good enough finally to make clocks which could tell the time beyond the hour. The very first mechanical clocks in the 14th century only had one arm for the hour. We borrowed the term minutes and seconds from Ptolemy of Alexandria via thousands of years of precursors, sexagesimal framework and all. We really could have divided our time by any number of ways, by 10, by 15, 20, 200, 2000. It really doesn't matter. What does matter is we have a common story we have all adopted, simple as that. It had history and a commonality in its favour, and as such it gives us a common, understood framework to work, to plan, to explain, to develop from, and to exploit. It allowed a framework to direct others by, and as so is a kind of noble myth, if you will. If you put aside the scientific advantages of measuring the second and beyond, such as Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe being one of the first to work in such small increments, and look at the lives of ordinary working folk, you can see how an accurate conception of time may have brought several advantages in organising your life outside of work. But when coupled with an increasingly industrialised world, it also enslaved a lot of people to its incessant tick-tock, tick-tock. For one, production moved away from a model with an artisan, making one item from start to finish, then doing the next one to a mass production model where maybe a dozen people made only one part over and over and over. Focus changed to how quickly a person can make that one thing. To a business owner this is efficiency. To a worker this presents a scenario where an artisan wants at liberty to take the time over a varied task, now had one simple, perhaps boring task, and can find themselves having to account for their every second if deemed to be swinging the lead. In 1748, when Benjamin Franklin offered the advice, time is money, it was clear the criteria for what construed a good job had tipped in favour of efficiency. In Bourdin's time, time and productivity experts like Frederick Winslow Taylor had codified your every second into a science. His method, commonly referred to as Taylorism, carried the official brand, scientific management. While Mr. Taylor suggested workers needed regular breaks so they could recharge their batteries and work harder overall, not that he was being terribly kind to anyone, you understand, 
He also had every task analysed to its smallest increment. He introduced the concept of soldiering to the workforce. The belief that a worker will do the minimum they can before they get into trouble. Believing soldiering to be the, quote, greatest evil with which the working people are now afflicted, end quote. He advocated the use of slave-driving managers to crack the whip. While Marshal Bourdin himself may have felt a slave under the shackles of a factory owner's obsessive drive to be more productive, let's not ignore productivity is measured against time, in minutes and seconds on newfangled accurate clocks. Factory workers were slaves to time as much as they were to a hectoring supervisor. In the 19th century, this adherence to time took more of a twist. As marine chronometers were more in use on ships, to more accurately assess longitude, and people travel more through time zones. As telegraphs and then later telephones made our world smaller, and as railways required some uniformity of time zones, clocks across the country and then the world began to follow a more common pattern. Towns could no longer have one town on their own time, and the next town on theirs, a few minutes different. While this seems like a good thing, and I would argue it is, Many an anarchist like Bourdin would have seen this as another way central governments were enforcing their will on the people. Only a few years earlier, on November 18, 1883, the USA had finally managed to get their railways running on a common time schedule, following the British who had done so back in 1847. The USA were trying to plan their burgeoning railway system around 300 local time zones before they made the change. Around a decade before the Bourdain incident, on November 1st, 1884, the world would officially assign 24 time zones at the International Meridian Conference in Washington, D.C. Greenwich Mean Time, based on this 24-hour clock in a London park, where years later a young man hopped aboard a time-shackled train and disembarked with the intent of killing time, blew himself to pieces. That Greenwich Mean Time suddenly became the beat we all danced to. Now as a coda to the story, on 23rd June 2019, the Norwegian island of Someroy announced that the tale we tell ourselves about time no longer served a purpose to them. When you are high up in the Arctic Circle and have a 70-day run without night, the downsides began to outweigh the upsides. Effective immediately, whatever that meant to them anymore. Time did not exist for the 350 residents. I remember hearing this at the time and thinking a little enviously how great that would be, to be far less a slave to the clock than we are today, and that the best times we have are those idle moments where you have nowhere you need to be, nothing you need to do, and you can just relax in a chair with a good book. Unfortunately, it turns out Somaroi were scamming us, it was a ploy by the tourism authority to get more people to come out and see the land that time forgot. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes are written by me, Simone Butlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog at www.historyandimagination.com. We'd love it if you followed us on the social media. Links in the liner notes. 
you've enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review on the podcatcher of your choice. We'll be back in two weeks for more Tales of History and Imagination.